Father, we thank you that your glory is being made known throughout the nations. Uh, even just in a small way, we're reminded of that through Sam's testimony and thankful for her and for her faithfulness to go where you've called her. God, we pray that uh, your glory would be manifested among us now during this, uh, these next few moments as we look into your word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So one of the themes throughout the Bible is God being depicted as the deliverer. Um, He is the one who continually is delivering his people. So you see it in places like in the book of Exodus where, where God delivers his people from slavery, a very obvious example of that. You see it in the book of Judges. Um, If you know that story, there's this whole uh, pattern of God's people um, crying out to God when they're they're lost in their sin and God saving them and then they go back to their sin and then God delivers them again from their sin and there's this constant pattern of deliverance from rebellion. And then we even believe that God is a deliverer. I don't know if you notice that because we say it every Sunday, but in the Lord's Prayer, we pray every Sunday. And that's just not words that we say either. That is an actual prayer that you are praying, hopefully. We always pray, God, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. But we also have to see that as God delivers you from something, so if He's delivering you from your sin, He's delivering you from slavery, He's delivering you from rebellion um, or from evil, He's always going to deliver you to something else every single time. The deliverance, the act of deliverance is meant to open your eyes to the reality of God and His specific work in each one of your lives. Because that's what He's doing. He's doing a specific work in each one of your lives. You're each a unique individual. You have your own personalities and God is doing a specific work in your life. And the deliverance is meant to open your eyes to that reality that God is doing something in you. To the Psalms of David, rehearse this over and over again. That's what David does. He's constantly redirecting uh, his listeners back to this reality of God at work in their life. So the theme of of our psalm this morning is one of personal thanksgiving to God for deliverance. And it's also written, it was also, David also wrote this psalm uh, to be used at the dedication of the temple, so the place of worship um, that was being built. David wrote this psalm for that particular purpose, and so it's a worship liturgy for this dedication. So it was meant to be used in, in worship by God's people. So it's a song or a prayer that, that focuses uh, our heart away from ourselves and our circumstances and then points them towards God because He is the one who delivers us. So we see that in three ways in our text this morning. One is that He delivers from death. Two is that He delivers from self. And then he's delivering us away from something, so he's delivering us to something else. He delivers to joy. So delivers from death, from self, and delivers to joy. So first, delivered from death. In verses 1 through 5, David's language here hints at the fact that he has been delivered 
from the worst possible thing that could happen to a human being, which is death. Death is, death, it's always the trump card to any of our sufferings. We could always say to somebody who might be saying, oh, woe is me, I've had this, this or that going on. We can always say, and I don't recommend saying this to somebody, but we could always say, well, at least you're not dead. It's always a trump card, isn't it? Well, David, being the king and being a powerful king at that and a popular king, would have many enemies that would not mourn his death. They would have a party. They would rejoice in David dying. So it's not, it's not clear in Psalm 30 uh, what brought David so close to death. Um, it is quite possible, and I, and I believe this is, this is accurate, that he was affected by uh, the plague that, that God brought upon David and upon Israel uh, because of David's disobedience back in Sa- uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24. And we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. But regardless, David is close to death. And God delivers him. God saves him. And David, in verse 1, making sure that his readers understand who it is that brings the deliverance. So as this is a psalm that's written for the, for the dedication of the, of the temple, the, the place where God's people went to worship, this, this psalm was meant to be used as, as a liturgy for them to relate, to, to relate it back to their own experience. They're not just saying, oh, look at what happened to David. Uh, isn't that wonderful how God delivered him? No, they were to use this psalm as a means in which to say, I have all of these awful things happening to me as well. Maybe I'm dying or maybe I'm just suffering or maybe I'm in a tight spot here. And I can look at this psalm and say, God delivers. And then exalt God alongside David. It's the same with us gathering here each Sunday. We don't gather here each Sunday to be entertained. We don't gather here each Sunday to hear a a spiritualized TED talk so you can be set in a good path for the coming week. We gather here every Sunday, week after week, to do exactly what David is calling God's people to do. And that is to extol or to exalt God. That's why we're here. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. To have, our, to have our hearts recalibrated back to the goodness of the gospel. That's why we gather. And so David is using his experience here to help. Uh, the, the occasion that, that God uses in David's life is, is bringing him to his lowest spot that he could possibly experience. And that is death. And then he's drawing him up back again to life. So this, uh, this phrase, drawing him up, is a picture of someone uh, drawing up a bucket from a well. So the well the, to, to, in order to get water from the well, a bucket has to be uh, let down in order to retrieve the water, but it also has to be drawn up again. All of this is outside the bucket's control. And David recognizes this. David recognizes this, and his response is to cry out to God in verse 2. David says, O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you healed me. You healed me. 
Let me just ask, do you, do you do that when you're sick? Whatever kind of sickness you might have, or have had, or will have. I think, it's, I think it is uh, rather hard at time doing this because our scientific age has, has removed a sense of God's uh, presence and intervention and healing. So it's, it's really easy for us to kind of focus in on, on medical advancement and medical technology and all these new medicines and vaccines that, that quote, heal us and then forget that it is God who still does the healing. Now, I'm all for medical advancement. I think we should continue to do so. But I think it's, it's even more important for us not to forget that God heals you. And I'm talking very practically. I'm, talk- I'm not talking spiritually right now. I'm talking practically. He heals you physically. Heals you. That's what David says. God, I cried out for God, to God for help, and He healed me. And then as John Calvin said in response to healing, it's our duty, it's our duty as Christians to sing His praises with our tongues when He does heal you. Which is exactly what David directs God's people to do in verse 4. David says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. David uses his deliverance from death as a springboard in leading God's people to worship. Although, this is what David's not saying. David is not saying, listen, guys, God has saved your king, and I know you all love me. And so I know you are extremely thankful because God has saved me from death and has kept me with you, so praise Him for saving me. That's not what David is saying here. David is not pointing at himself to be praised. David is not even trying to, to, to redirect uh, the, 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 uh, the people's worship in a way that, that they're not able to place their own self into this personally. It's not what David is doing here. Now, David is saying, God has been gracious to me because God is gracious. And that, that is why we should praise Him. So what David is doing here is pointing the people to God's character. And it's in verse 5 where we see this made really plain by David. He says, sing praises, give thanks. Why? Verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. That's why we sing praises. Okay, so what verse 5 is not saying there. Verse 5 is not saying uh, every cloud has a silver lining. That's bogus, okay? That's not what what David is saying here. David is not saying uh, you've got to take the good with the bad. It's not what he's saying. Uh, he's not saying that, you know, you just, you just have to, yeah, we're, we're all going to suffer and you just kind of have to muscle through it and get through it and just wait till it's over and just endure it. And then eventually it'll move on. That's not what David is saying here. He's not even answering the age-old question that says, or asks, why do bad things happen to good people? David's not doing that. What David is talking about here in verse 5 is that the favor of God always outweighs his disfavor. It always outweighs his disfavor. And let me just add this. 
for God's people. The favor of God always outweighs his disfavor for God's people. Now David is using a personal example here. David knows he is feeling the wrath of God at this moment. And he is recalling this for God's people. He is saying that I have felt God's disfavor and it is awful. So he understood this personally. So back to the account that I mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 24 of David's disobedience to God and numbering his, his fighting men. Now, if you re- recall this story from your Bible reading, you, you, you might remember this, that David was just got into a, a funk and he wanted to, to feel comforted and, and wanted to know that he was safe. And so he sends out some of his men to go and number the amount of people uh, or amount of men that could fight, that, that, that would build his army. And even after counsel from, it, from, from these brothers that were around him and said, don't do this, this is disobedient, you shouldn't do this, this isn't following what the Lord wants for you, he still does it. And I think it comes to a number of like over a million men that would fight for him. I mean, a humongous army. David was safe. But David finally sees that what he's done is wrong. He finally sees that he is walking in disobedience to the Lord. And his, his court prophet, the prophet Gad, comes to David and gives him three options for his discipline. One, he could have three years of famine. Uh, two, he could have three months, uh, three months of uh, being wrecked by his enemies in war. Or three, he could have three days of plague that would be administered by the angel of God. And so David chooses the latter because this is what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14. David says, Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So David's choice here in 2 Samuel reflects the same conviction we see in Psalm 30. David knew God's character. He knew that, that, that God's mercy is great, and then he chooses, based upon that truth of God, of God's character, he chooses to fall into God's hand instead of man's. He knew that he, even though it was going to be awful, even though life would be lost, he knew that it would be better to be in God's hands than man's. Which proves to be the right choice. God does eventually show mercy. His his anger is displayed as, as just a moment. His favor a lifetime. Eternity. And I think this is important to know. Even though David says lifetime, he means so much more than just the life that you're living right now. Because we have a life beyond this. As believers, we, we believe that. That there is, there is eternity that we are still waiting for and hoping for. We have that to look forward to. So it's important for us to understand that. Because uh, you may, if you're suffering now, you, there's some of you in the room that may never experience healing this side of heaven. So we, we pray for healing. And I think a lot of the times when we pray for healing, we mean heal me now. Heal me while I'm on this earth. Heal me so that I can spend time with my family. Or more time with my family. Which is completely fine to pray. I think we should pray that. But we also have to understand and realize that 
healing may not be on this side of eternity. The healing may come, come on the other side of eternity. And God is still answering that same prayer. He's still answering that prayer to heal you. It's just not here on this earth. I think we have to understand that and kind of get our minds around that heavenly reality because if you are one of those people and you have some kind of terminal suffering happening in you and and something that's never going away, you're probably going, why, Lord? Why don't you take this from me? But it's good for us to understand that one day you will be free. You will eventually be healed and it will be for all eternity. Your suffering on earth will be but a breath compared to your healing in eternity. God's favor will always outweigh your suffering. Always. Isaiah 54, 7-8 says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So I recognize that it's, it's, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by your suffering and begin to believe that no relief is coming, no end in sight, and you start to think, uh, God's favor is momentary. God's favor is momentary, and His anger or my suffering is everlasting. It's never going away. And then you get to verse, uh, the second half of verse 5. Look there with me. David says, Weeping may tarry for the night, which means you may weep in this life. Actually, you will weep in this life. You, and if you haven't already, it's coming. Weeping may tarry for the night, David says, but joy comes with the morning. The sun will rise, David says. The light will always break through, every time. I think a couple of ways that you can... Just quick applications, not a lot of detail to these. Um, you can ask me later more, but it's, it's a couple of things that you can do to kind of get yourself there. One is, is to do what David has done with God's people, and that's to meditate on God's character. Meditate on God's character, that He is merciful and He's gracious. He's loving. He's your loving Heavenly Father. He's always going to care for you. He'll never let you go. And then second, I kind of hinted at it earlier, is to meditate on the heavenly life. To meditate on the heavenly life. We don't put our minds there enough. We don't talk about our impending death enough. But it's, that's one thing that's, that we all have in common is that we're all going to die. So we need to meditate on the heavenly life. And let me just quote John Calvin again. I'm using his commentary. That's why. I'm not trying to make a statement. So, John Calvin says beautifully, Whoever therefore directs his mind to meditation upon the heavenly life will never faint, never faint under afflictions, however long continued. And comparing them with the exceeding great and manifold favors of God towards him, he will put such honor on the latter to judge that God's goodness in his estimation outweighs his displeasure a hundredfold when we meditate on the heavenly life. Well, David has experienced delivery from death 
Um, but he also experiences deliverance from self in verses 6 through 10. And you have to appreciate the way in which David leads in worship here. He uses personal experience not to receive praise, but to point others to the character of God. So David essentially is saying, God delivered me from death, so praise Him for His eternal faithfulness to all of us. That His favor always outlasts His anger. That His favor is always toward His people. And then in verse 6, in another honest moment, David confesses his sin. David enters into uh, to a prayer of repentance when he says, As for me, God's delivered him from death. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. That is David's confession of sin. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. So, in a moment... David became a practical atheist. Right here, in this brief moment, David becomes a practical atheist. And it's, and it's this that he's repenting of here. He took refuge in the, in the quiet and flourishing state of his kingdom. He has over a million men who would fight for him. That's a comfort to his kingdom. He trusted in his chariots and he trusted in his Horses, and this was a great relief to him. And each of us is in danger of doing this. We're all in danger of, of comfort so consuming, uh, so consuming us that we allow it to, to kind of rock us to sleep. And then thinking like David did, I shall never be moved. I have everything I need. I am safe. I am comfortable. Nothing will ever move me until it does. But notice the shift that takes place in David between verses 6 and 7. A very brief confession. They don't always have to be long confessions, but a very brief confession. And this shift takes place between 6 and 7 because it's here that David recounts how God delivers him from himself. Verse 7, by your favor, O Lord. By your favor, O Lord. So David just spoke about God's favor lasting a lifetime, and now he gives testimony to this reality in his own life. It's the reality of, of God's favor delivering David from himself. It's a confession that his, that his pride provoked God to bring him to the point of death. To bring him to a place where his, his prosperity couldn't reach. Because your, your money and your, your, your large arm, army and, and all of these things cannot reach to you in death and do anything for you. He took him to a place of dif- discomfort that couldn't be relieved by wealth. And David says, you made my mountain stand strong. How did God make David's mountain stand strong? You hid your face, and I was dismayed. So God forces David to see his own sin of self-dependence 
in order to be delivered from himself. David says, look, God, you made my mountain stand strong, and this is how you did it. You hid, you had to hide from me. You had to remove your presence from me for a moment so that I would feel how lost I was, even with this large army around me. And I was dismayed. 2 Samuel 24.10 records um, how David reacts to this. He's, he says, but David's, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. So after he had gone through and, and did what was disobedient. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have done very foolishly. David knows that he's wrong. He confesses that before God. So two shifts that you need to make per an application here, okay? So one is, is, it, is asking if you're, if you're suffering today. Are you suffering today? So if so, I want you to stop and think, is this suffering being caused by something that is going on within me? Is this suffering being caused by my dependence upon myself, uh, i.e., is it being caused by my own sin. We don't typically like to stop and think about that. But our sin can cause suffering, even physical sickness at times. To stop, I'm not saying it happens every time, I'm just saying stop and ask yourself that. The scriptures tell you, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul talks about examine yourself. Test yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. That's what Paul says. So that's one shift you can begin to think about. Uh, two is recognize that, that you, Christian, have a security in Christ that, sorry again, John Calvin said, preserves your mind in peace amidst the troublesome storms of the world. That's what kind of security that you have. It preserves your mind in peace, in, in tranquility amidst the storms of the that you will face. So essentially, what God has done for you is He's, he's given you a lens in which to view the world. And that lens is the Gospel. And the Gospel allows us to see everything about life differently. It changes your, or at least it should, change your entire perspective. And this is David's testimony in verses 8-10. through 10. This is the, the, the fruit of his chastisement, we could say. The fruit of his discipline from the Lord. David's viewpoint is refocused. He's been delivered from himself and he's now ready to cry out to God for mercy. Because he wasn't ready beforehand. He was trusting in his prosperity. And now God has, has hid his face from him. He is dismayed. And now he is made ready to cry out to God in mercy. And in verse 9, he's better able to see that the life that God has given him is for the purpose of showing forth uh, God's glory in the world. That's why David says this in verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? It's the same perspective that Jesus later gives to his disciples in John chapter 9, verse 4. When he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. 
So just as God delivers you from something, He's also delivering you to something else. I mean, that's, that's the definition of a delivery, right? You're delivering from one place to another. But here it is God delivering you from your death and suffering. God is delivering you from, even from yourself. And He's delivering you to joy. So I hope that you can see that the only way that you are uh, delivered from all your sins and misery, as the Heidelberg Catechism put it, is by God. David acknowledges this here, right here in verse 11. He says, uh, You have turned, me from, turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. David has been delivered from mourning to joy. And it is God who has done that work. C.S. Lewis wrote, The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And that fountain is not the fleeting desires and passions of this world. That joy, that fountain of joy is Christ. That's the fountain of joy. Because as David is telling us, infinite joy is found only in the God who delivers you. It's found in in the only source that can make your heart dance in the midst of sorrow. And and that that it only happens by way of God delivering you in Christ. It's the only way that you can dance in the midst of sorrow. Now, this isn't discounting mourning. So if you are mourning or suffering over something, it's not discounting that and say, don't mourn, always be joyful, never, you know, never have a frown on your face. That's unbiblical, all those things that are, that are not true. This isn't discounting your mourning. What this is doing is redirecting your gaze. Because typically we like to take what we're suffering from and we like to stare at that and be angry at that and be sorrowful over that instead of looking to the one who delivers us from it so that our mindset and our eyes are refocused in a different way to look at the gospel instead of what is actually causing the suffering. So we're redirecting our gaze toward the one who always delivers you to joy. So God may be allowing you right now to walk through suffering in order to deliver you from yourself. Have you ever thought about that? God may be allowing you to walk through suffering to deliver you from yourself so that He can deliver you to joy. So maybe you feel like God has hid Himself. Maybe you are dismayed. And so maybe God is doing that work in you now to deliver you to joy again. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in the problem of pain, his book, The Problem of Pain. He, you may have heard this before, but he says this. He says, we can, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. 
And when the flag of truth has been planted in your soul, David says that the only way that you can respond to that is by using your life to tell others about the God who delivers you to joy. That is your only response. Verse 12, David says, that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. So David is, if you, I mean, David was a king. And he had everything that you would think that a king and a kingdom would have. He was powerful. He was majestic. He had a large army. He led God's people. He was loved and cherished. And David recognizes that he has glory. Earthly glory. But he has glory. And David says here in verse 12, that, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. So this phrase, sing your praise, means praising God openly. So we did that today. I can hear you guys singing during the worship gathering. We are praising God openly together in this place, within these walls, every single Sunday. And it is a beautiful noise that we make together. And we should be doing it, even louder. But one thing, this thought from uh, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce was really helpful to me and, and really convicting for me this week. Because he says, um, in, in, uh, he quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 6, verse 45, uh, that Jesus says, out of the overflow of, flow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then commenting on this, Boyce says, so if you're not speaking God's praise, it's because your heart is not full of Him. So if you're not speaking God's praise, it's because your heart is not full of Him. So the application point is to fill your heart and mind with God. To know God. The, uh, the first question of the, the Genevan Catechism uh, asks this, what is the chief end of human life? And the answer is that human beings may know God by whom they were created. That is your chief end. The most important thing about your life is to know God. And this isn't just to Christians, mind you. It's to all of humanity that the chief end of all human beings is to know God. That's why it's important to go to the nations. That's why it's important to continue to plant churches. Because that is... Humanity's chief end is to know God. And to know Him in a way that we are able to see all of life from His point of view. And then speak about Him to others as David is doing in Psalm 30. To sing His praises, not only within these walls on a Sunday, but in every sphere of life that God has called you to during the week. Compelled by the joy you've been delivered to in Christ. Amen. Let me pray. God, your word says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. God, I pray that we would rest in your presence always. Whether or not we are suffering at this time, that even in that, that, in our suffering, that we would rest in this joy, that we would rest in your presence. But I would say even more importantly, that we would rest in your presence when things are going well. 
when the temptation to, to be rocked to sleep by our own comforts is at our doorstep, even at our feet. God, help us to rest in your presence so that we know your joy constantly. God, help those who are suffering today to know this joy. Help us all to sing your praises, not only within these walls, but that we would sing your praises in every part of the world that you call us to, compelled by this joy that we've been delivered from darkness to light by Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.